game going to have puzzles? Uh, simple, simple puzzles, like uh, what's in my pocket. That's not a puzzle. What's in my pocket, or are you just happy to see me? Live for the Mundangerous Anthropology in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 298 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about playing those curious, wily, and fragile creatures, humans. But first the party splits up in the Gates of Morning campaign, and later the Steam Knight is boiling for a fight in the Character Creation Forge. Oof, that pun. It's a good one. Oh yeah, there's plenty more coming. It's a horrible. <laughs> Speaking of horrible, we have uh, 298 episodes so far, uh, so we are very, very close to episode 300 and our mailbag. Mm-hmm. And this is your final chance, final, final chance to get in your questions, uh, because you know we record early. Always, we always record early. We never record last minute. Never once have we turned it in the night before. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since we are, of course, trying to make sure that there's plenty of time to edit this thing because it is going to be exceptionally long, uh, we're probably recording it mm, this week, next week, early next week. So before the next episode airs. So get your questions in Twitter, Discord, email, however you want, um, and uh, get them added to the pile. Yeah, link to Discord is in the show notes uh, at tptcast or totalpartythrill at gmail.com to get those in. Just put mailbag in the subject or, you know, whatever. And once we hit episode 300, we're taking mm, not a break. Actually, it's mm, just as much work because we're not going uh, bi-weekly, but we are going to take the month of January to do an actual play again. Should we talk about what system we're running? Uh, we don't know yet we haven't decided exactly what system we're running should we talk about what's in the running for running <laughs> i think options are more 5e yes continue the adventures of tez proud gill in uh in Morgrave university and the trust which i'm sure we'll get to eventually even if we don't do it in january and then we do have our hands on a copy of the second edition of the one ring which I guess we could do an AP of before it officially releases. Um, I don't know yet, because that would mean we have to read it and absorb how to play it. Uh, I mean, I could read it and absorb how to play a game. Uh, I could maybe even read it, absorb how to play a game solo. Uh, I have to read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> do you, though? Well... I know less than zero. That's not true. It's not less than zero, but it's not much. So uh, uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. You could just watch 12 hours of the extended release movies. Well, wait, that's 12 hours each, right? Uh, if only. If only. And it wouldn't even begin to capture the you know, the full brimming goodness uh, that to Tolkien brought us. Uh, no, it's 12 hours altogether if you watch three movies back to back. Okay. Well... I'm also not going to do that. Mm, I'm that pretty sure I haven't seen the third one, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Imagine falling off a movie franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I um, think that that is the perfect amount of preparation that you should do for a Tolkien AP. Okay. 
Well, I guess we could put this up to uh, to a little community input. Uh, would you rather continue the tales of Tez, or would you rather hear Shane muddle his way through uh, Middle Earth while uh, Ishan just shakes his head in disappointment at how little I know about fantasy? You have to sing the songs of elves and men, I think. It's important. Uh, okay, well, I will sing yeah. a song mm-hmm. of elves and men, but I can't promise you're going to enjoy it. You can You can speak friend and enter and that there are many connotations there this game gonna have puzzles (laughs) uh simple simple puzzles like uh what's in my pocket that's not a puzzle that's not a what's in my pocket or are you just happy to see me i think that's how it goes wasn't that from the hobbit yes okay see i read that one see good book yeah the children's book Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. the good book hey ishan they're all children's books. I was just, I was trying to beat me to it. You're not wrong. I am actually not sure what an adventure in the One Ring looks like. Um, like, I'm not sure what player characters do in the One Ring. Um, so I am, I'm very curious to read it. And uh, if, if folks are interested in hearing us play, uh, I would also be interested in learning enough to actually play in it. Um, all kidding aside, I will take the actual play seriously, but um you know, so I'm I'm curious what a solo adventure would look like, especially. Yeah, I don't even know what the resolution mechanic is for the game yet, but I guess we'll see. Uh, it's uh, it's rock paper scissors. That makes sense in a medieval game. They're using well, it's it's actually. I mean, it's called um, uh, elf human dwarf. Yeah, I mean, I was also I was about to say. Huh, using scissors, but I'm I'm pretty sure they had scissors in the Middle Ages. Sure, <laughs> they did. What they didn't have was rocks. Right, that's right. Yeah. The technology had not yet been invented. Still in the ground. Right, papyrus scissors. Mm, but I don't know. We don't have. If we had heavy things to put on our papers to keep them from flying away, that'd be great. But I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. Where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Fairhaven, the peaceful capital of Ondaire, the party is hunting down quarry mine seeds. Party, rest the night at the Galanda Inn. Uh, unlike every other night since they arrived in Fedakir, those of them that dream have a pleasant night's sleep with none of the visions of trauma and blood that have plagued everyone previously. Reading Wilmo's dossier apparently alerted her because the next morning they hear a ping in their minds from her ring and her voice crackles throughout the room. Wilmo tells them that the triage operation in Fairhaven has gone underground. Nobody knows where they are right now, but they do still seem to be operating in the city. She surmises they will be somewhere quiet, someplace with access to medical facilities for their experimentation, or at least enough space to set up their own. And Triage's leader, Otho de Jurasco, has a flair for the dramatic, she recalls. Switch asks if there's anyone knowledgeable about diseases they can consult about their blood. And Wilmo says that their blood doesn't act like any disease she's heard of, but... She knows a few people in House Jurasco she can ask surreptitiously. Other than that, there's people you don't want to mess with. When the party presses her for more information about these people, she reluctantly says, 
There's the daughters of Sorakel, they might know. They're the hag coven that rules Droam, the land of monsters. Or there's Mordain the Fleshweaver, a war criminal ejected from House Fjarlin. You probably can't even really call him a person anymore, she adds, and then they can, they can hear a bit of a shudder in her voice. She also warns them about the Royal Eyes, Ondare's spy service. They work in pairs. There's never just one Royal Eye. See? I told you. Puns. Puns upon puns. Lenore assumes this is who is following her. So the party decides to split up, which is never a great idea. Lenore and Zan will head to the House Thrash Enclave to follow up. Bramble and Switch decide to go speak to the Wardens of the Wood at the office of the Eldian Envoy. Warden looks for other druids to confer with, and Vesikad visits the Kalashtar neighborhood of Shagra. At the Eldian Envoy, Bramble and Switch find a grove surrounded by a wall of woven branches still growing from the ground. A two-story wooden building sits at the center of the property, and the walls and rafters are formed from full logs with their bark still intact. A rough-hewn staircase leads upstairs. After a few minutes of waiting, Bramble and Switch hear a voice behind them, and a satyr, clad in a fine woolen cape but no other clothes, stomps in. Golden hoof shoes clatter against the floorboards. Bramble guesses this must be one of the fey presences that Warden sensed earlier. The satyr introduces himself as Rip, and very shortly afterward is followed in by an identical satyr in a fine vest, whom he introduces as his brother, Nuzzle. Bramble explains a bit about their quarry. He doesn't get into too many specifics just yet. Uh, he alludes to a threat, though, to the gates that keep Zoria at bay. This intrigues the brothers, and Rip leads them to a third floor that isn't visible from the street. It's open to the air, with a peaked roof supported by bare beams and no walls or windows. And just then, a strong breeze ruffles all of their fur. From behind the copse of trees, the huge form of an owl, at least ten feet tall, glides silently on powerful wings and alights in the rookery where they now stand. I am Dusklighter, envoy of the free peoples of the Eldine Reaches, counselor of the Wardens of the Wood. It booms in perfect common. Do you seek an audience, Andarian? Our treaty grants you that right, but speak well. It is morning, and I'm tired. So Bramble identifies himself as a green singer, and the Fae begin to take him more seriously. They eventually reveal that the gatekeepers are not a separate order of druids, but are comprised of members of other druidic orders who are tasked with protecting the gates and the dimensional seals that keep them active. When Bramble explains that they're hunting quarry, Dusklighter admits he's suspicious of the Readrons, but the foreigners have been quiet for decades. He tells the satyrs to find out what they can. So with minor magics, the brothers conjure and then boil water in a basin. Then freeze it solid into a clear mirror. Rip scries over the city, noticing the influence of Thalanus over their own grove. But he's surprised to find a similar presence from Dalcor looming over the Marble Halls district in the eastern part of the city. It was once a noble's quarter, full of theaters and temples, but it has fallen into disrepair in recent years and has become a popular place for underworld business. Bramble guesses that an old temple would be a good location for Triage's hideout, and Dusklighter points out that the abandoned Temple of the Silver Flame, empty for 80 years since it was sacked during the war, is considered haunted by the locals. Finally, 
pressed by Switch to offer any aid they can against such a dire threat against the gates. Dusklighter reluctantly reveals that the gates themselves that hold back the Plane of Madness are not, in fact, multiple locks on a single door. They are single locks on multiple doors. Many smaller dimensional seals support a handful of gates, and single seals occasionally wear out or are broken. But if even one gate falls, Zoriat can pour through the breach. Fortunately, by design, almost no one knows how the gates work or where they're located. Only a few powerful lineages who maintain the gates were entrusted with the locations, and each of them only one location. Who they may be, though, is a mystery maintained to keep them safe. Perhaps Hydruid Oelian is one of them, or maybe one of the blood scions of House Thrash. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about playing humans. A so this is, thing that we do every single day, Yishin. Yes, when I go to work, business casual is cosplay. Mm-hmm. So this is the latest episode in our long-running series on playing non-human characters. But of course, unlike previous episodes, we're talking about playing a race that all of us are familiar with. But humans in a world that has elves and magic or faster-than-light space travel or sapient aliens or whatever are a different breed of creature. So we always start the series with a description of the race in question or species in question. How would you describe humans, Ishan? I would say they're just like us. They'll often have some setting-specific differences that set humans apart or, or make them not quite real-life humans. The most general description of humans in most RPGs, though, is that they are middle-of-the-road in every way. They're the average. They're the baseline, which, of course, usually makes them the most boring. They're often painted as ambitious, easily corrupted, or easily manipulated as a result. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, when we talk about non-human races, they're often caricatures, right? So, like, if you have, you know, a tabaxi, like a, a cat folk, the writer of that race will usually take stereotypical things about cats and then, you know, sort of cram them into an entire like species-wide personality you know like oh this is this is what cat folk are like they're you know consummate hunters they play with their food and they're aloof but i think we kind of do that also with humans in rpg settings as well um we sort of like caricature the writer's personal feelings about people and like our current society so you know you get like ambitious humans in a lot of settings but it's all it's often usually played as like something like slightly there's some slight corruption about that ambition or there's there's greed or or malice about it right it isn't usually like oh i'm i'm out here trying to make the world a better place that's very rarely how like humans are played and then you look at you know someone like tolkien who who basically was like oh humans yes the most easily corrupted race of any created by iluvatar the race that won't make it out of the first book. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing that I think is important to remember when you're playing when you're playing RPGs and also with a lot of like genre fiction, action movies, comic books particularly, the thing that sets those humans apart from the real world is how much hardier they are 
Batman can get his spine broken and kicked into a concrete pillar. And what happens? The pillar breaks, not Batman. <laughs> if you compare this to like real life human anatomy, all of this is absolutely impossible. People are like lifting weights above their heads that are you know, anatomically impossible to do in real life. And yet it fits the fiction and it's cool. And we go with it. Even something like, you know, a D&D fighter, stock human fighter, you know, at higher levels can do things that are essentially mythical and that's the conceit of the game and, and often that's the conceit of the setting you know like we don't have the same limitations that we do in real in the real world the planet broke before the guard did is that katia is that a katia reference that's a katia that's the 35 okay. right? yeah <laughs> did the pylons break or were the pylons were the pylons yeah. the bad guys all along no, the pylons were, were what was stabilizing the Eye of Terror, and the, those mm. went down, and then Creed sacrificed uh, a bunch of stuff and then got captured by a Necron who's just collecting trophies at this point. I think Abaddon ran a Blackstone Fortress into the planet to shatter the Cadian Gate. The only thing I know about Blackstone Fortresses is that Henry Cavill likes them. Blackstone Fortresses are, there's like canonically like 13 of them. And like four of them are gone Twelfth already, room. and the fifth okay. got ran into Cadia. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're going to write themselves into a corner here. All right, I'm glad you're bringing up 40k though. I want to talk about 40k humans. Uh, I think it's a actually kind of a unique and interesting take on people. Let's talk a bit about the history of humans in RPGs. Obviously, nobody like dreamed them up or pulled them out of mythology or whatever you know humans exist in every edition of nearly every rpg that has ever existed except for ones where, which very specifically exclude humans but the role that humans play in each of these games and settings has always differed because it's, it's so hard to like find a real useful niche for the quote-unquote average race yeah they can be overly industrious so they stand in opposition to nature Often they're extremely adaptable compared to other races. So a lot of times their mechanics give them more choice, right? To kind of customize versus other races get kind of more locked in. Yeah, often they're portrayed as like curious and quick learners. And I think industry and adaptability and curiosity are are less like things that make humans human because obviously they're incurious humans and that doesn't make them not human. It's a writer's way of demonstrating how the other races in my book are not these things. Elves are not ambitious because they live for 700 years and they have plenty of time to do stuff. They just make art for 400 years and like eat fruit. They're fine with it. Part of the description of humans is commentary on those other races. But... It, it describes humans not so much as an individual, but as a culture or a society in this particular game setting. Humans stand as the foil to the more interesting races uh, <laughs> that the authors get to dream up. Yeah, exactly. And I think the challenge when you're playing a human in a fantastical setting is making the human interesting. Even as a human in, the, in these worlds, you're like, who cares about us? I'm not a dragonborn who can breathe fire. I don't have any wings. I don't have any, like, you know, fiendish ancestry. I'm not a cyborg yet, I guess. <laughs> that you know of. Another thing that I, that I think happens a lot is humans in settings will either be completely united, like there will be a monolithic human 
culture, like in 40K, or they'll be completely divided and like broken into, splintered into, you know, dozens and dozens of different cultures and communities. Like Eberron. You know, Forgotten Realms, right? Like we talked before, there's like, there's one draconic language and there's like one um like ignan fire elemental language and then there's like 17 human languages from all across the forgotten realms mm -hmm. these are all very different cultures from different very different places and they do different things it's one thing i like about 40k is like pretty much all the humans every time every time you meet a human like it's imperium they're the imperium they're imperial or heretics although it is interesting because I remember way back when, we were, when I was learning 40K in the first place, someone described to me that the humans are not humans, they're dwarves. I described that to you, Ishan. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, no, I'm pretty sure it was just someone. Someone okay. not specific. <laughs> <laughs> they're not physically dwarves. It's just that they occupy the space that dwarves tend to occupy in a setting, in that they're, you know, sturdy, dedicated, industrious but also like prone to their foibles, right? Their religious dedication limits what they can do. Their sort of insular nature makes it difficult for them to recruit allies, which in other cases, humans would typically be that connecting tissue. They would be the ones who do form the alliance between the elves and the dwarves. They broker that. In 40K, they're the dwarves. Nobody wants to ally with them. Everybody hates them. Just like everyone hates the Tau. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. There's, I mean, there's, there's a fair number of Xenoists in the Imperium as well. <laughs> I think from now on, I'm going to describe Moradin as a corpse god. I think it works great. Oh, okay. Yeah, that yeah. works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So if humans are boring and there's not really anything that defines them, what are some actual reasons to play them? Because let's be honest, so many of us often play humans. Mm-hmm. As, as a human player, allow me to elucidate. Sometimes you want other choices to matter more than your race. You don't want to be defined by the thing that makes you different from being human. Do you just want to, like, I don't know, kind of go, go on cruise control when, when you're playing? Or, like, you want to explore class features? Or, like, you really want to dig into interesting offerings of a particular set of game mechanics but what you don't want to do is get distracted by in-game racism or having to deal with learning about how the flight rules work because you have wings or like learning spells because you like apparently were born knowing some magic or whatever right you just want to be like i want to ignore all of that i, I want to focus on the part of the game that i'm that i'm interested in and like it has nothing to do with like my physical form you might also want your power to come from what you learn and what you experience rather than what you're born with. A lot of times humans have the benefit of that adaptability. They also tend to be short-lived. They have that adventuresome spirit. They amass wisdom through doing, and that, that's where their power comes from. They don't have magic coursing through their veins unless they're, you know, midichlorians or whatever. You might also play humans if you just want to fit in. More than likely, humans are a pretty common race in your setting. So if you want to be able to travel wherever you want to go, walk into a village and have people welcome you, human is probably the way to go. And of course, obviously, it's the complete opposite of this if you're playing one of those very rare settings where humans are also rare. It's also good to be a human if you want part of your story to be about adventuring in a dangerous world. 
if you're an ogre, it's not that dangerous a world out there, probably. I don't know. Do they have stories about lone wandering Necrons or heck, you know, a space Marine on their own, you know, gallivanting around the, the galaxy? Like it, it's not it's it, sure it's dangerous and scary, but it's not that dangerous and scary. A lone human with no claws and no breath weapon and like a pretty slow moving speed. Almost everything out there that is worth putting in a monster manual can murder you. You might also want to be good at many things and have the option to change your mind later. I think owing to the fact that humans are masters of none, if you will, yeah. you're less committed to an archetype in in comparison to some of the other races that are sort of more defined and solidified about tying their racial background into their career or their class. In some game systems, humans are the ones who actually can make career changes, right? Like dual classing in earlier editions of D&D. At pretty much any table, no matter who your GM is or what your GM thinks about the setting, it's not going to be a problem. Like whatever character choices you make as a human isn't going to be a problem. I can always see the possibility of running into an issue if you're playing another race that someone has very strong beliefs about saying like, oh, I don't think a dwarf would do that. So if if you think that there's the possibility that that could happen and you want to avoid it, or if you're playing with a group that you just don't know a ton about and like you're just not sure is if I play a half orc, is am I just going to be dealing with fantasy racism like day in and day out? Human is a safe option. You might also want to explore more realistic choices and consequences, and that's not realistic in that like you know the the consequences don't make you know sense to the internal fiction. That's realistic in terms of how would you react, right? If you were a person, you yourself in your form were a person in a fantasy world what would your reaction to a given situation be? That's much easier to do when you don't have to layer the veneer of what is my race's role in this setting? What is the expectation for my race in this setting? A lot of times you can just play yourself. Think like you think because you're a human. That's how humans think. Yeah, it's sort of like the complete opposite of what we've done with this entire series which is like get out of the mindset of being a human and apply the unique things that this particular race might do like if you're a lizard folk suddenly your options are wide open in terms of like what do you do so that you don't starve to death and that becomes a much more fantastical type of story about like were you able to eat rotting vegetation or the corpses of your enemies or whatever without cooking them because like you have stomach acid and you don't have a cultural aversion to those sorts of things. If you want to tell a story about being stranded in the woods and, you know, really wondering if you need to go Donner Party or not. And like this is a like a, an intense moment where you're literally deciding like how much of your humanity, like literal quote unquote humanity, you're going to hold on to in the middle of this deep, dark winter. Human is the best choice for that. Yeah, almost uh, by definition. It's right Humans there in the name. have the most humanity. Weird. All right, let's talk about the physiology of humans. This is an interesting one because traditionally, like, there's no stat mods, right? You're, you're just sort of, like, baseline, play it how you rolled it, usually. But recent years have seen humans actually get a lot stronger, sometimes literally, but, but like, mechanically stronger with being able to choose 
their stat modifications anything they want you know we know humans who are stronger than average we know humans who are more intelligent than average etc etc you know all these other races are sort of locked into it because they're all the same physiologically but humans oh we can't we couldn't tie humans down to a particular set of statistics or sometimes they just get bonuses to everything how you interpret those choices can also inform physiology right like in fifth edition you know the alternate human gets a feat well, if you take the lucky feat, maybe that's skill, right? Or maybe that's literally magical, like you've been touched by the goddess of luck. Alternatively, if you take one of like, a, what is it like magic initiate, right? Where you gain a cantrip, that could be a physiological change about you that is different from other humans. You have the innate ability to cast spells like anyone else who innately casts spells. That's something that some people learn to do but you could choose to make that a physiological fact. You're a wizard, Shane. I was born a wizard because I've got midichlorians mm -hmm. in my blood. That's how it works, mm -hmm. apparently. Thank you. Thanks, George. Great idea that you had and then made uh, canon. Of course, humans are medium. <laughs> Usually they're the definition of medium in whatever setting you're in. Things are either human-sized, <laughs> smaller than humans, or larger than humans. Because it turns yeah. out most RPG players are human, so that's a good base, base of reference. And that means like the world is built for you. Almost every, I think... RPG. I'm trying to think of like an RPG where like the standard setting isn't human sized. Um maybe like uh what's that one with mice? Bunnies and birds. But then you don't even you don't even play humans, right? Like you play mice. It's like the Red Wall game. Somebody'll tweet it. Yeah, you should add us. Likewise, no dark vision and that actually probably I think for D&D &D particularly is like the biggest drawback to playing humans is that it's tough to go into a deep dark dungeon uh, unless you've got torches whereas like so many other easily available player races can just walk around in the dark with no problem you also typically don't get any special movement no burrow speed no swim speed no fly speed think of these things not as normal think of them as limitations if you are playing in a world where there are creatures that do not have these limitations, every human in the real world can't see in the dark. And so culturally, we have like a fear of the nighttime and the things that lurk in the shadows. Your dwarven buddy doesn't probably makes fun of you. <laughs> Might be confusing for dwarves, this concept of day and night. Humans notoriously have a fetish for the sun. They're like really big into that like big orb that helps them actually see things some humans even believe that like the world rotates around it it's wild that's gross in 5e humans get an extra skill but i think that's actually a pretty common trope humans get additional knowledge somehow right extra languages or can learn languages quickly skill points the ability to access any skill sometimes if they don't necessarily get more of them designers are always really reluctant to tie humans down i guess because you know every single player is is a human and you want to have as big a tent as possible for players mm -hmm. to like see themselves in the character in 5e anyway humans get an extra feat just to just an extra like ability thrown on on top and this is i think one of the places where like in the fiction a human can shine they actually have the opportunity to start out with an ability that no other race can start out with 
not the feat itself, but there are many feats that give you abilities or capabilities or access to things that you can't get except through a feat. Especially at low level. So many people play variant humans in 5th edition because you can make a game-defining, character-defining choice at level 1. I guess a lot of people would say, like, that's what a race is, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Of course, humans get common in another language, so not really a a better knack for language than any other race, but they don't have their own kind of, typically, their racial language, and so they learn somebody else's. Slash... Or the human racial language is the common tongue, right? right? Like in Star Wars, do I'm not actually sure. Do people speak like Corellian? They speak basic, but like on Corellia, do they speak basic? Or do they speak basic and Corellian? Do people even use Corellian? Or is it just like humans speak basic all over the galaxy? Humans speak basic and basic is the basic because humans speak it and we're everywhere. I don't know if this is now Legends, but I believe that Corellian did have its own language, and that's where a lot of cuss words come from. Corellian and whatever they speak on Coruscant is what was the basis for Proto-Basic or whatever. Right. Probably something like that. Which, yeah. Whereas, obviously, we should all be speaking binary. The true universal language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This only really comes up in games where you do have plenty of non-humans, but humans are, for the most part, pretty much restricted to lifespans of like 80 to 100 years. You maybe get a little bit longer if you're lucky. Maybe if you're playing in a far future sci-fi setting, you're looking at 200 maximum 300 years, but like that's all you get. You get less than everyone else for the most part, except for, you know, the quote-unquote corrupted races. And we've talked about that before and how that's, you know, garbage. Humans will also tend to be gear dependent, owing to not having any natural protection from elements, no natural weapons, none of those sort of innate abilities. They're going to have to get that from their gear, whether that's armor and weapons, or that's a spacesuit, or that is what were those things that like you put over your mouth, uh, gillyweed? You put that in your mouth and chew it. Yes. Oh, okay. Wait, you... there was there was another thing. Uh... A bubble, a bubblehead charm. Is that the one that just like makes a little bubble of air around your head? That's it. Yep. The, bu- the bubble head charm. Is mm-hmm. that the Eberron one? No, that that's all Harry Potter. Oh, 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 oh. no, no, no. What's the, uh, there was something from, uh, from Stormrack. Uh, Stormrack? It was like an air plant and you just stick it in your mouth. Oh, right? uh, that's it. Okay, sure. Yeah. Anyway, the point is there's lots of ways to solve these problems for humans because they get gear to do that for them. I don't need a sleeping bag because I have a tauntaun. Right, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's single use. It's a single use sleeping bag. It's a consumable (laughs) sleeping bag. (laughs) Literally. I'm never going to use that because I don't like taking things off of my sheet. I don't have an eraser for this pen. I stole this pen for my, this pencil from Ikea, crossed it out, and it just, it just looks dirty. I don't, eh. All right, um, en- enough. This is the Tauntaun episode. <laughs> okay. okay, but I think like gear dependence is something to really think about if you like want to make your humans realistic. There's the old trope of like, oh, naked and afraid. But like a naked human in any setting, sure as hell better be afraid because you got nothing. You can't eat, you can't kill, like you can't stay warm. But that's what feeds into the trope of like industrious humans, other races, other species have adaptations that make them much more able to harmonize with their environments. Humans never have those adaptations that they need. Like at best, they can breathe. 
in some some settings they can't even do that right like like water world <laughs> yeah right like what good is a human on on mon calamari that's why humans turn to industry that's why they organize that's why they're so focused on exploiting natural resources and and building things is because like that's what they need to level the odds that's how they survive in all these different environments and climates I think there is the idea of the player character and then, you know, by extension, the human as like self-sufficient, right? But in these kinds of settings, the human absolutely is not self-sufficient. Like it is the Goliath that is self-sufficient. It is the dragonborn. It is the tiefling, right? The you know, people who can like, <laughs> right, who can survive, you know, inhospitable environments, who can survive being stabbed multiple times a day and shrug it off the human the human should be a socialist the human needs civilization and society mm -hmm. in order to to survive the human needs numbers and quick breeding we're only like a million minds away from a hive mind we're so close oh no we All gotta right. consolidate down right to one <laughs> one human is a hive mind <laughs> if if the criteria is every mind then yes this is exactly. much faster <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, culture. I mentioned this a little bit with 40K, um, but I think humans tend to go in one of two directions, either monoculture, right? There, are, There is the human culture and all of us are in this together, whether we like it or not. Or they're the only real diaspora in the setting because like, you know, nobody writes four different societies of, of you know, Kenku, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess... Tolkien sort of did that. They just didn't show up in the book. For the humans? Well, no, every, for, for other races got multiple, like, got diaspora. They just weren't really part of the book, right? Because there are multiple clans of dwarves. There are multiple groups of elves. Yes, just... you get more of that in, like, the Silmarillion, where you have, like, the Noldor and the... Yeah. I forget who they are. I believe are. you. I believe in the Right. But like, you know, in the in the like the books, you really just get like an individual elf, right? Like it's Legolas and his dad. And, you know, they like they're from they're Mer Mirkwood elves and like that's who they are. And they're the only people you really have exposure to. Same thing like the dwarves from like the Hobbit and Fellowship. And Lord are, of the Rings. Yeah, like the same uh, dwarves, right? Yeah. And then like one is the son of one of the dwarves from the Hobbit. So right. like it's, it's it's literally the same family. Right. Uh, now with human cultures, though, they often end up being analogs for real world cultures. And this can be extremely problematic depending on how they're depicted and who the author is and, you know, how much they know and how much is actually like misrepresentation or appropriation. That can also lead to carrying over prejudices and, and real life biases and can box in the way that humans are portrayed and the ways that playing a human in a setting sort of intends for you to think. I think we've used this example before, but like, you know, if you're playing, if you, even if you don't call the character a samurai, if you describe them in the way that people tend to describe samurai, then you are automatically coloring most people's perceptions of that character. And if the setting that you're using, like the book says, there's a noble class that uses lamellar armor and you know rides on horseback fires bows and uses curved swords it's pretty difficult to then start imagining things beyond the bounds of what existed in the real world often humans have 
the most common deities, and that's either the human deities are the ones that get worshipped most widely, maybe because humans are the most common species, or because human is the baseline, then their deities just sort of get adopted as baseline, whether that happens in-game or it's just a thing that game designers tend to end up doing. I think it's like pretty rare to see humans have a niche religion, you know, one that most people don't know about, um, unless you've got like cultists. Unless cults are kind of a racial trait, like human cults tend to be the shakers and movers in most settings. They tend to be the ones who have doomsday cults or want to summon some outer evil or want to make bargains with demons or summon them and try to control them they tend to be the kind of cults that move the needle whereas like a lot of other religions their cults are either fringe beliefs that are just in conflict with the main or they're depicted as like dark elf dark eldar sort of drow kind of thing where like they're devoted to transgressive i suppose like (laughs) concepts right like you know murder when you're playing humans think about the wide world that they're going to be inhabiting. What is different about this setting that you're playing in, like different from the real world? And how is that affecting the humans in it and their outlook, right? Like if there are evil giants in the countryside or marauding aliens who are coming down and blowing up cities, how is it that the humans have survived? What compromises did they have to make with the way that humans exist in in the real world? What part of ourselves did we have to give up? Um, How did we have to stretch beyond what we do now? What technology did we we have to build, right? What gear did we have to make in in order to survive in this new harsh environment? What would those stressors do to a civilization, right? And and think about that because a lot of times humans are presented as adapted to whatever the environment is, meaning they still have some sense of what things would be like without those stressors. Human cultures tend to remember what what the idyllic would be, even as they're having to deal with the harsh reality. Right. They, they have that vision for the better outcome, the better world, the, the, the better solution to no longer having marauding aliens or evil giants on their doorstep. Yeah. Like too often fantasy or sci-fi humans are just like real life humans, but, you know, they also happen to have magic or, you know, advanced technology or whatever. And you really need to like strike this delicate balance between having humans in the setting be recognizably human, relatable to players, but also products of this fantastical world where they also in a believable way react to the new opportunities, options, and challenges of the world. All right. So let's talk about interactions between humans and other groups. We can start with family. I think in almost every setting, family is probably the strongest or one of the strongest ties that humans have. And it is almost always central to a human's identity. Even if they don't like their family, they have a family name or a clan or a home world or whatever made of people that they're probably related to by blood. And that's like an idea that I think is extraordinarily difficult for us as humans to get away from when we like write games or settings it feels so anathema to us to not have society based around the family unit yeah that's why so many adventurers are are orphaned or estranged it's almost like you need to have a reason that you would set out 
<laughs> that you would leave the family behind, that you would you would sever that connection. That's like one of the least human qualities of your typical adventurer. It's PC 101, right? Like you got to burn those bridges. Right, exactly. There's <laughs> <laughs> no going back, okay? No going back. <laughs> So in fantastical settings, think about how you interact with other humans. Uh, probably you're thinking, where does this other person stand in comparison to you in whatever hierarchy we have for humanity, whether like I'm a noble or I'm a peasant and, and you are not. And remember that sometimes differences between people are the most pronounced between people who are the most similar. So you can actually have a scenario that makes complete sense. It's, it's extremely believable where the two humans are the ones who hate each other the most or are so fixated on one person's station or one person's like place of birth or whatever, even though they're surrounded by like a harpy and, you know, an awakened uh, boule, you know, as the rest of the party and like random aliens because you see the other human and like, you know how you relate to them. And like, this is the thing you fixate on. As for other races, the interactions humans have with them basically boil down to like, are they bigger than you? Are they really dangerous because they have huge teeth? Do they know a bunch of innate magic? And then, you know, all of those things are definitely colored by are they friendly to me or not? <laughs> and failing that, do we have common enemies? <laughs> because humans I... known for creating enemies. <laughs> look i know i look tasty to you but we look tasty to the dragon and right. i'm just saying we should get along i have gear i got so much gear well speaking of dragons let's talk about reasons for humans to go adventuring curiosity um sure if you're gonna be the boring race you may as well go out and find stuff that's not boring right curiosity killed the human and not the tabaxi you might be adventuring to improve your station in life. One of the hallmarks of, of human civilizations is often that industry and money can improve your social standing. So since we're playing an adventuring game, you're not going to sit at home and build the business. So you might as well go out and kill some monsters and take their loot. There's definite opportunity for upward mobility in these types of settings. Uh, you might be out there to grow in power in order to keep up with the more powerful races. If you grow up in sigil and there are literal like celestials walking the street and like you might be friends with them you really need to make sure that you're getting class levels that you're gaining xp that you're getting magic items just so that you can hang out and not get incinerated in a bar fight okay keeping up with the joneses huh <laughs> humans are typically pretty short-lived so you might be looking for a a way to solve that right youth or eternal life or, or even just the technology and capability to prolong your life. Humans make the best liches. I think I agree, actually. And it, uh, canonically, most of the liches and most of the, like, the coolest liches are human. Because like, you got reason and you got a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Motive. That's all I needed. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Classes that are good for humans... Ugh. Obviously, almost always, it's any. You're supposed to be good at anything you do. But also keep in mind, you're pro in game, you're probably going to be drawn to things that don't require physical prowess. Because I don't know any game where humans are the strongest. Mm -hmm. 
race. It's certainly possible, right? It could could just be like halflings and brownies and sprites and like little fey creatures and gnomes or whatever. But like nobody writes those games. Winnie the Pooh. Hello. Christopher Robin is by far the strongest in the setting. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure Tigger could take him. There's no way. There's a reason that Pooh always calls Christopher Robin to solve his problems and not Tigger. And it's not just because Tigger's adorably incompetent. I think Tigger Tigger would just would just pounce on Christopher Robin and knock him right off that bridge, and um, you know he'd uh, he'd lose in his final final round of poo sticks. Nope, because he would drown. Wrong. He would drown in those tiny those tiny shorts. Nope, that's not that's not Tigger's bag. <laughs> his bag is having his top made out of rubber and his bottom made out of springs. Are you sure Piglet doesn't hide hidden strengths? I mean, that might be true. If I was going to pick a class, Piglet would be a barbarian, obviously. So would Rue, by the way. Rue would make a great barbarian. <laughs> Rue's also always looking for a fight. I mean, kind of. Not really, but, you know, kind of. Rue's a good warlock, too, because uh, always wants a short rest uh, in Kanga's pouch after every fight. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about humans in combat. They work best in groups because as we've sort of hit home again and again, an individual human is weak for the most part, right? Barring your odd archmage or lich or whatever, one human uh, is not a challenge. A group of humans, though, they work well together because they have to work well together so they don't get exterminated. Right. Six humans for about five minutes per day is very imposing. (laughs) Can change the world, yeah. They'll be defined by their role or their faction, usually, rather than their race because there are no particular special abilities. They don't have any magic. They don't have any cool charge capabilities and any like stat abilities or new languages or whatever are already going to be factored into the baseline sheet also you mentioned that humans are individually weak but i think that's often counterbalanced by being very tactically sound you know a a lot of times it seems that other races are culturally presented in how they how they fight Half orcs are barbarians, right? They rage. They're undisciplined fighters, right? Like dwarves are defenders. They form a shield wall and they hold the line. Whereas humans are adaptable. They're capable of employing, sort of seeing those different tactics at, at work and best deploying them to maximize their advantage. It's just sort of the nature of humans is solving problems that way. We haven't really gotten into this, but like that is something afforded to humans almost automatically by GMs and game designers is that as soon as you make a character a human, they get agency in determining how they act. Even if you say, okay, these are Spartans and, you know, they're going to fight to the death and like, you know, they have to go home on their shield or don't come home, come home at all, right? Like, even if you have defined their tactics in that manner, an individual Spartan in an individual situation will still usually make the best tactically sound decision that they can given their options right you know whereas it's much easier at least in our minds to to simplify like what does the dragon do it breathes fire and then it's claw claw bite until it dies right i think remember that anytime you are confronted with uh, human NPCs, they're capable of anything that the PCs could potentially be capable of, right? Like if you can be a raging barbarian, if you can be an archmage, so can they. There's no in-game reason they can't be. Right. And I, I think there's a good way to reflect that is just steal whatever stat block you want and present it as a human. Done. 
As for skills, again, humans are supposed to be able to be good at, at anything and maybe are better at most things than other races. But think about how, like, not every race has opposable thumbs. Some of them have wings. Some of them don't have arms. Humans are probably pretty good at dex-based skills in general just because we, we have opposable thumbs and, you know, we're pretty good at crafts and things like that. And ever since we were primates, we've been using tools. They also have highly varied vocal abilities, right? Humans can speak pretty much any language that they're capable of learning or they have the opportunity to learn. We can make sounds, we can sing, all those sorts of things. Performance options vary widely. Mm -hmm. However, humans have poor eyesight just in general across the animal kingdom. Bad at seeing things, bad at smelling things, and bad at tasting things. So mm -hmm. if you want to poison humans, it's pretty easy. Yeah, humans have terrible taste. Agreed. In aesthetics and in partners. I, I just meant like, yeah, in aesthetics. They wear the worst <laughs> outfits. Uh, magic items. Let's be honest. Most magic items are centered around humans or what works for humans. Even the uh, the concept of magic rings, right? Like humans have fingers and so we have magic rings. Right. Humans have necks and so we have necklaces, you know? Yeah. Boots always come in pairs, huh? The centaur is pissed. <laughs> Opportunity to wear two different boots, though. It's true. And I would wear one on the front left and the back right and vice mm. versa. Yeah, mm. yeah, real Harlequin. Mm. But consider that you could have fun, interesting, unexpected things like the Lord of Blades carries human bane arrows. Why? Because he just hates people. Fair enough. Yeah, all of House Caneth is human, so go for it. If I could have one magic item, it would be a human bane weapon. Absolutely. <laughs> It'd certainly be the most practical in our world if you're... Going around murdering people, I guess. Just threatening. I'm just threatening. <laughs> you don't this need is a human. Too... Isn't a gun a human this... bane weapon? <laughs> but this does it does extra against humans. You don't know, like if like, you shoot a cow, you know, it does one bullet's worth of damage. But my human bane gun, if I shoot a person, does one bullet plus two d six. I feel like bullets do less damage to cows than humans, so I think they are human bane. I mean, relatively speaking, right? They got more stomachs, so you're you're less likely to take out their stomach function. Mm, think of it this way, though: a cow is four times as likely to get gut shot. That's a good point. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm. that's but a thicker, bad way to go. Thicker hide, probably still not get, enough to stop a bullet, though. Got to go from beneath. That's that's the best way to take out the bovine. You need to burrow. <laughs> okay, just wait till they fall asleep and dip them over. Moving on. Please don't do it. In conclusion, Let the... don't tip cows. <laughs> <laughs> In the great war between the badgers and the cows, the badgers won because they came from beneath. Ah, uh, yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we gave them guns. Mouse guard. Mouse guard. There you go. Bingo. Okay. Take that reference. We stick it where it needs to go no 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 no. leave it right here in the conclusion aram this is i got it i got to the answer it was mouse guard i said it would come and it did i meant the i meant the listeners dear listeners rewind in your brain to wherever it was and stick mouse guard where it needs to go <laughs> okay perfect <laughs> all, right. all right so if you're going to play humans make them interesting you have an opportunity here to be you but more and I believe in you. And I think you can do it. Well, thanks. I'll try next time. Yeah, please try harder. Do you hear that, Ishan? That is the sound of creatures with big fangs and sharp claws 
prowling in the darkness, and that is why I'm going to stay in here with my lamps and guns. I mean, wrong. That's just the sound of the wind rustling the leaves against the window, but you have terrible human hearing, so let's move on to the character creation forge and build something a little more sturdy, shall we? But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Steam Knight. Ishan, what is the Steam Knight? You've seen these before, whether it's in an anime or an anime uh-huh. or uh-huh, or you know, your friend who used to be goth and now is into steampunk uh, and has decided to put gears on everything. Ingenuity knows knows no bounds, right? But human frailty is the stuff of legend. So humans often build impressive suits of armor to protect themselves. Plus, you you know might might want to throw in all of the gadgets that the Victorian era actually has to offer. It, it is it's the best of the old and the new put together, with some goggles. I hope goggles, yeah, so you can see in the dark, and then piston powered punches, things like that. Okay, jump jets. So what's, what's the build? <laughs> it's Oath of Conquest Paladin Five Artillerist Artificer Fifteen. Are you literally using this for piston powered punches? That's how I reflavor some stuff. Yes, absolutely. And we will get to that. Some people are probably wondering why we're not taking Battlesmith to pile everything onto intelligence and attack with intelligence. It's because you can do more damage with Artillerist, and I think Artillerist is like all around the best Artificer subclass. So you're going to go Strength Intelligence. Yeah, also Battlesmith has a pile of complicated bookkeeping to do. So Yeah, you're just going to take it for three levels, and then you've also got a steel defender, which you're too big to ride. Right. So like, what's the point of it? Anyway, I guess humans should have a loyal dog. Fine, fine. So we're going to kick it off with Paladin 1. You get Divine Sense, you get Land Hands, fine. But we're actually here for heavy armor because you are a knight and you wear heavy armor. Thank you very much. You also get martial weapons. Then we'll take four levels of Artificer. We'll get uh, cantrips like Guidance and Booming Blade. We'll gain infusions to take enhanced armor and enhanced weapon. Uh, eventually, we'll get stat items. If you want to play the long game, if you know that you're going to go to high levels eventually and you're willing to wait it out, you can dump strength or like you know keep it at 14 and don't pump it there and rely on like your enhanced weapon in order to land your attacks because eventually you can make strength items like gauntlets of ogre power and eventually belts of giant strength and then you had all those points in intelligence and charisma to make them all worthwhile that's the long con then at level three you take artillerists you get the shield spell and you get eldritch cannons two options here that are actually good you get the force ballista or the protector totally up to you which one you want to use you can switch between them at rests the force ballista is your bread and butter here it does 2d8 force damage and pushes five feet so what you're able to do and that's as a bonus action so what you're able to do is attack normally and then as a bonus action attack again 
Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, that's a ranged attack. A couple things you can do. It doesn't have to be on your person. It can stand wherever and then attack without disadvantage. But also it pushes. So you can keep them at bay by taking Polearm Master, which I think is an excellent thing to do by pushing them away with your Force Ballista. And then when they have to close to range again, you automatically proc your Polearm Master attack. It takes a while to build up because of the feet, but once it all comes together, it's beautiful. Uh, then Protector is also the other one. As, as a paladin base melee combatant, you are a glass cannon, right? You're dishing out a ton of damage, so you're a, a high-priority target. One great way to keep you and your allies alive is to every round use a bonus action to get mm, like 11-ish temporary hit points. Shane, we did this in the Castle Amber live stream, and I think it was... Very effective in keeping everyone alive all the time. Mm -hmm. Temp HPs are great. Then we'll take up to Paladin 5. We'll gain Smite and a Fighting Style. We'll also gain Divine Health, so you're immune to disease. You'll gain Armor of Agathis, and you'll be able to use Guided Strike once per long rest. Which is a that plus 10 to your attack to make sure that it lands. And then eventually you get extra attack. Up until now, you've been probably using Booming Blade um, as your bread and butter attack. And now it's up to you, depending if you want to cast a spell or not. But you've always got your bonus action attacks. And then we take Artificer out to 15. So at 5, you get an Arcane Firearm for an additional D8 on Artificer spells. That's, you know, when you actually deign to cast a spell that does damage. You get Tool Expertise, Flash of Genius to add your Intelligence Modifier to uh, a Saving Throw. Skill Check. Yes, Skill Check or Saving Throw uh, for you or other allies. Extremely handy. And then at 9, you get Enhanced Cannon for an additional D8 on the Force Ballista. It doesn't uh, help you protect her, unfortunately. You'll also get a Spell Storing item so that you can share your casting ability with others or gain some casting from, from an ally. Yeah, I mean, invisibility or aid are always great options. You get used magic device, so you can ignore uh, race and class restrictions on items that you do find. And then your capstone at 15, you get fortified cannons. They always grant half cover to creatures of your choice within 10 feet of them, which is always going to be you and probably most of your allies, which is a plus two to AC. And you can have two cannons at the same time. So you can cover more of the area with two protectors. You can have both a protector and a force ballista which activate on a single bonus action or if you just really want to double down on the damage two additional force ballistas for an additional 6d8 damage every single round on top of your melee smites all right yeah hover around those uh those cannons and get fireballed brilliant it'll be fine because i also have fireball well if you get two cannons they both have half cover that's full cover i mean that's just math that's how it adds up Plus, also, I gave you a bunch of temp HP. So, you know, just if and if you didn't save, I'll, I'll flash of uh, genius you. Okay. So, you know, Good. start saving already. All right. Before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. And supporters at any level get access to our plot hook of the week bonus content. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about bad RPG advice. And in the character creation forge, we're building Just Play a Fighter. Well, that's it for episode 298 of Total Party Thrill. 
I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.